0: All right, we're continuing on in 1 Corinthians this morning. We are into just neck deep this morning into controversy and will be until we're done. Uh, from, from all corners of church world, I will be an equal opportunity offender for the next several weeks, okay? Uh, you'll be plenty of chances for everybody, depending on your persuasion, to, to go... I don't know about that, right? Or I'm uncomfortable with that. That's okay, all right? That's okay. Uh, My challenge to you is to just try to be biblical. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm just going to say what the Bible says as best as I can figure out and let our feelings just be whatever they are, okay? So that's where I'm at, okay? Um, And so I would like to start with prayer, which I often forget to do. And just pray for the Holy Spirit to help us this morning. And then we're going to dive right in. All right, So God, we just ask you right now that we submit ourselves to your word. God, say what you want to say. Do in us what you want to do in us. God, we give you a blank check right now. And God, we just want to be people that receive whatever it is you want to give us. And that's it. So help us to be simple in that way. And give us faith and courage to just believe and do what the Word says. In the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So <clears throat> we've been in 1 Corinthians 14 for a few weeks now. Um, chapter 12 through 14 is really the heart of the, the whole book of 1 Corinthians, the letter. It's where Paul gets really practical. He's laid the foundation for a lot of things with this crazy church in Corinth that is super divided right, that, uh, over all sorts of things, and they're, they're treating each other poorly. So not only are they divided, but some groups think they're better than others and treat those groups as, as they don't even wait for them to show up before they start eating together and having communion. And they have like fancier food than the rest of them. It's a whole thing, right? It's just a mess. On top of that, when they come together to worship together, like we're doing this morning, it's nuts. It's chaos. There's no order there's just, it's a, it's, you got, it looks like there's people like trying to, multiple people at one time trying to address the congregation. Some of them are prophesying. Some of them are speaking in tongues. And not, nobody even knows it. So if you walked in to this worship gathering on a Sunday or whenever they would meet, if you walked in, you would just stop at the back door at the entrance and probably just turn around and quietly escape to the parking lot. It was nuts. Okay, and so Paul is going to take all these things he's been teaching, primarily for the chapter 13 about love, which we got into a couple of weeks ago. He's going to take that and he's going to apply it to their gathering together. So it's going to take us a couple of weeks to get through all this because he opens up several cans of worms and then doesn't address it because he didn't need to with this church. But with this church in this room, we do need to address it. All right, and so it's going to take us a couple of weeks. We're going to talk about tongues this morning, we're going to talk about prophecy next week. And then we're going to talk about just general, like, what are we doing and why are we gathering together and what do we do when we do that? Okay, what does, what does Paul have to say and what can we extract from the principles we can extract to apply to how we meet together, all right, in general? That'll take probably three weeks. So we'll go over some of the same verses multiple times probably, all right? So let's start 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. We're only going to get past the first one to start. It says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So I'm stopping there because we're already in trouble. We can't get past the first one, right? Um, So the first thing he says is pursue love. So he's just, he's taking 1 Corinthians 13, right? If you were here for that sermon, just remind yourself of all the, the radical definition of love that he has. That, it, that is not worldly love. That's a, a, a lesser version of what Paul is calling for in chapter 13. He's taking all that and he's bringing it along with him into this discussion about how they worship together. Okay? He says, pursue love and earnestly desire, be eager for the spiritual gifts. I'd say maybe a, a third of us are eager. The rest of us are like, Mm, I don't know. He's saying be deeply committed to, eager for the spiritual gifts. I fear that this zeal for the Spirit to work through us in miraculous ways is being lost. I'm really genuinely concerned about it as your pastor. I think we're losing it slowly. It's being lost because it's very hard for us to do what the Bible says instead of what we're comfortable with. This is every human being's tendency is to be eagerly uh, desirous of the things that we're comfortable with, the things we actually want, and the things we're uncomfortable with, we just sort of avoid it however we can. And that means we, generation after generation, we tend to like move towards a kind of compromised, watered-down, wishy-washy kind of faith that everybody in the room is comfortable with, but nobody's experiencing the power of God the way he's called us to. And until you read like the book of Acts, and you start going, wow, there's some really serious stuff and miracles and all sorts of things happening there. And I'm like, well, and for just a moment, you feel dissatisfied. And then you just go, ah, turn a few pages and keep going. And we never think about it again. And this is how we end up losing this experience of the power of the spirit through us. So my parents' generation, sitting right over there, rediscovered the gifts of the Spirit during the charismatic movement of the 70s, the Jesus movement. Spilled over. They were not hippies, but they knew some hippies, all right? Probably thought poorly of them, but they knew them, right? This was a time of renewal for many that were in a lifeless Christian religion with very little experience of the power and the presence of the Spirit in their life and in their worship. And I can remember growing up around two people impacted by that movement that there was an expectation in my household to not just talk about God as though he were at a distance and silent. And he had just He was silently and coldly kind of ignoring us and just saying, well, you have your Bible, read your Bible, that's all I need to do. There was an expectation that he would inhabit his word by the Spirit and speak through that and do like really amazing, miraculous things that the stuff we see in the Bible should be happening now. That was the expectation. So the question was always, what's God saying to you? If you get around my dad for more than like a minute and a half, he's going to say, what's God saying to you? And, and you never know how to answer. <laughs> You're like, what do you, what do you mean like this? He's talking, and you kind of look around. You will yeah, in some way or another, he is always talking to you. He's leading you somewhere. He's prodding you. He's convicting you. He's doing all sorts of things to speak to you all the time, and I grew up around that expectation. I'm super proud of it. That movement diverged into all sorts of branches. Some were good, and some were bad, and some were really bad. I mean, out of that, we have, like, modern worship. That's kind of cool, sort of. Right? Don't know what to make of it anymore. We also got, like, the prosperity gospel. That's really bad. We're exporting that all over the world. That's an embarrassment. There's also some really good stuff that came out of that. We came out of that. This church did. I mean, I'm pretty proud of that woo Go Living Hope. As for our stream of churches, many of us that are my age, Gen Xers, the forgotten generation, who, who are my Gen Xers in the room? Hey, we're in charge now. I don't know, I don't know if you noticed. Um, we, we're sort of the in-between generation that no one thinks about. Everybody talks about the millennials, they're all lazy. Gen Zers, we don't even know what they're doing right now. We're all confused, and nobody talks about the Gen X. We're just sitting there with our arms folded going, I just miss you know, Nirvana, right? <laughs> like the band, not the place, right? Um, with our arms folded, like we're happy to be ignored. We grew up around the gifts, or not liking the gifts, depending on where you came from. And now we just sort of shrug our shoulders about it. It was a normal, everyday thing. I grew up in a world where everyone expected their lives to be directed by the guidance of the Holy Spirit on a daily basis. You need a parking space? Just ask God for one. And then there's a parking space. And you're like, well, prove that God made that parking space available to you. I can't do that. What kind of, I don't have that kind of access to God. What are you talking about? Lost your keys? Ask him to help you find it. Don't know about that job offer? Wait for God to tell you. We look for the voice of God in every circumstance, prayer, dream, and thought, because we believe that God loved to talk to us in all sorts of ways. And it's a little too easy to make fun of those people. There's something about an expectation, even if you think, well, God isn't concerned with your parking space. I mean, do you think God's strapped for time? There's something beautiful about the childlikeness of asking God for those simple things. I think it takes a lot of faith to be that person. So if you're that person, don't be embarrassed. But then some stuff happened. The weaknesses of the movement, namely that in the process of discovering the gifts, they decided that the church needed to start over. Alan Austin always talks about this in our LHC 101 class. Church restoration movements sometimes, often, maybe most of the time, go sideways because you end up throwing out the baby with the bathwater. You throw out, you know what the church has kind of sorted out over time, and you go, well, we know better. We're going to reinvent the wheel and start over. You throw off your boundaries and your moorings, and you can end up in some weird places. The hard lessons learned by church history were mostly lost, including the strong emphasis on good doctrine, church government, and order in worship, which starts bringing us closer to 1 Corinthians. So while the boomer generation was energized, the Gen Xers became disenfranchised. I cannot tell you how many Gen Xers and millennials I have talked to and heard the exact same story. Many of you are in this church. Just checked out. This thing seems like a lot of hype, a lot of smoke and lasers. A lot of talk and a lot of faking it. And you catch enough people faking their miracles or faking their experience or just going along with the crowd because it seems to be what everybody else is experiencing so I'll just put on a show. Or ministers that expected you to react a certain way when they prayed for you so you just sort of did that to meet the expectation instead of having a genuine, honest experience with God or not. It became not okay to not have the experience So, you had once again, we had in the church a division between the cool kids and the not cool kids. The cool kids were the ones that spoke in tongues and did the stuff and fell out in the service or whatever it was, and the not cool kids were the ones who just wouldn't fake it. And so, a generation checked out and didn't trust it anymore. So they continued to be intellectually convinced of the gifts, but when, on, when honest, would admit that they never wanted to see them in action ever again. So we, we have this weird category of a lot of people who, who, when they read the scripture, like most people, just say, I can't say biblically that these don't ever happen anymore. But please don't ever do it. So I want to find a church that believes in the gifts but doesn't do them. That's what I'm looking for. Some call that charismatic with a seatbelt. Or my favorite is charismatic in name only. Chinos. (laughs) But I can tell you that millennials and to a greater extent Gen Z are not even thinking about the gifts. What one generation stops talking about, the next one forgets. They are not offended or worried. They're just not thinking about it at all. I feel some responsibility for that. It's like an alien thing to them. I fear that, that they are where the boomers were before their awakening in the 70s. And we have come, we're about to come full circle and lose what we learned. Living Hope Church has become a kind of meeting ground between several groups. This is just my observation as your pastor. We have boomer charismatics who are eager for the gifts and mildly irritated that there isn't more of it, but stick around because everything else seems in order. Don't raise your hands. Mildly irritated, just like... Everybody's looking at you, Alan. We have Gen Xers. I can raise my hand. Gen Xers that are neither neither eager for the gifts, nor do they want to get rid of them. They nod approvingly when tongues are promoted, but they would rather not speak in tongues themselves, for example, or hear it in their presence. Millennials and Gen Z Christians that are sure it's in the Bible somewhere, but wish no one would talk about it and just leave them alone. They're doing just fine without it. Thank you very much. No one's looking at the front row. Y'all are regretting sitting on the front row now, aren't you? And lastly, those from a traditional church background that like the expository teaching and doctrine and this whole charismatic-sounding stuff, it's just an anomaly they tolerate in an otherwise healthy church. And somehow, God has brought all of us together in one space, in one room, and it's super awkward sometimes like right now, because the Bible. God has a way of sort of making everybody uncomfortable at the same time. So that's all right. Just be honest about your discomfort with God and just say, God, like I talked about a couple of weeks ago because I knew this was coming, I said, give him a blank check. Don't give me a blank check don't say, I'll believe whatever the pastor says. Just say, I will believe and receive whatever it is that God wants to give me. Full stop. The Spirit of God, through the Apostle Paul, would say to all of you in all those different groups be deeply committed to, even eager for, the spiritual gifts. Remember, he's talking to a church that is not so. It is chaos. It is over the top. It is out of order. And he does not say to them, you, you desire the gifts too much. The gifts are the, not the problem. The problem is the people not loving one another. And he never says, he never even hints that we should desire, you're, you're too over the top with your desire for the gifts. He says to the crazy people, the flaky charismatics having the crazy meeting, and he says to them, be eager for the gifts. I would say, Paul, you're kind of saying that to the wrong people. You should be telling them to tone it down. Chill out. He does not say that. That's significant. He's actually protecting the gifts by prioritizing love above everything else. The right use of the gifts makes the gifts healthy and receivable by people that are nervous about it as opposed to the wrong use of the gifts, the unloving use of the gifts turns people off and makes it diminish. It's one of the reasons we're in the spot in. Everything he's about to say is not an attempt to clamp down on the gifts so that they just never happen. He's actually promoting it. All right, that's verse one. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, interesting caveat, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. All right, so first of all, Paul is picking out tongues and prophecy here not because the other expressions of the Spirit, the other gifts are not as great, not as important. It's because this church is abusing these two gifts. And so he's correcting specific things. Okay, so if you... Or, like, have the gift of faith, you shouldn't be sitting there going, Well, he didn't do a whole chapter on the gift of faith. Well, you know, it's because that wasn't a problem here. He's fixing problems. It's not because those other gifts are less important. By the way, it's interesting that these two gifts also remain the most controversial ones. Like, nobody's complaining about too much wisdom. Y'all are really going nuts with the wisdom around here. And it's just causing a disturbance. Stop with all the wisdom, right? I'm just I, I would rather not have the gift of wisdom. Like that's not an issue, okay? Uh, it's because it's not weird. It's the weird ones that cause people to be uncomfortable and cause some people to use them as a status builder to begin to separate themselves from those that don't and elevate themselves above them as more spiritual. And it becomes a kind of excuse for all sorts of terrible, activity which we've already looked at in 1 Corinthians. So what are tongues? I believe there's two types. One is the Spirit-prompted ability to speak an earthly language that is unknown to you, as seen in Acts chapter 2, where they spoke in tongues and people heard them in their own language. There are some that contend that that's not a different type. They were just speaking in tongues and people were hearing in tongues which is an interesting theory, but it's just not there. It's not said there, so I'm not going with it. I think there's two types, all right? When we get to heaven, I'm happy to be wrong, all right? Type two, the spirit-prompted ability to pray and praise God in a heavenly dialect, possibly even an angelic language that is not related to anything spoken on earth. It's a good definition from Sam Storms. So we can see in verse two that the kind of tongues that Paul is talking about here is not to men, it's not to people, it's to God. It's a language that belongs to heaven. Now, if this is sounding weird to you, you're you're right. Okay? Don't start asking me why. Why would God do this? Why would he do this strange, weird thing? Why not just tell people what to say, like with prophecy? Why do this? And I don't know. But I know there are some benefits to it. So what, what is New Testament prophecy? got. I'm going to talk about this more next week, but we, it's right here in the middle of this thing, right? Simply put, it's the human report of divine revelation. That's a fun, short definition. It's just a human being saying what God shows them, okay? <clears throat> Understand the structure of these verses is helpful to get the intent. In your notes, by the way, there's some on the back table and online. You can click the link in the description. I've got a little chart I'll try to say what the chart says in words, but it's sort of hard, all right? So there are two balanced pairs here, the one who speaks in a tongue and then the one who prophesies and they're compared to each other. You see that the audience, who, who the target audience is of the two types of speech and the outcome for both types of speech, all right? So that's what I mean by balanced pairs. For the the tongue speech, the tar- the the target audience is not people but God, so when you're speak, the person who speaks in tongues is not talking to people, he's talking to God, and the one who gets edified is yourself. Okay, that's the result of those tongues. All right, the other kind of speech is prophecy that he's talking about. The target for that is people, because it's in their language, right? And the result is that. It edifies the people, and including the church and unbelievers. There's two groups he points out. So to quote Gordon Fee, Paul's emphasis and concern is unmistakable, the edification or strengthening, building up of God's people. The one activity, speaking in tongues, edifies only the speaker, not the church. Because it is addressed to God and no one understands what is said. The other activity, prophecy, edifies the community of faith because it is addressed to people and speaks edification, encouragement, and comfort to them. All right? So I think the principle we can look at here is Paul puts a a massive emphasis on intelligibility, on being understood. The message must be understood, or it's pointless. The only one being edified at that point is the one giving the message. That's an important principle, by the way, across everything we do, especially when we worship together. It's intelligibility. If you're ever praying or doing any kind of ministry, think about, am I making sense? Because <laughs> sometimes you're really not. And it's actually really godly and important to think about, am I making sense what I'm saying? It's really important. All right, so let's keep going. Verses 13 to 25, he says, therefore, because now he's going to, so he set up this dichotomy between gifts and tongues, two different types of speech, and the audience and the, the results, okay? And now he says, based on that, therefore, here's how you should do this. One who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider or an unbeliever say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person who is not being built up, what are you saying? For you may be giving thanks. Oh, excuse me, I just read the same line twice. Verse 18. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. There it is, that whole eagerness thing. He's sort of humble bragging that out of all these crazy people in Corinth who apparently are speaking in tongues quite a lot, he says, I got you all beat by a mile. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you. Again, he's reiterating the problem is not tongues. The problem is a lack of love in the way they're using their tongues. Lack of concern for other people. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Yes, they will. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. And I have seen that happen. It's an amazing thing. So, Paul places a premium on intelligibility for the edification of the unbeliever who is assumed to be present. So, the the intelligibility thing is not just about your church buddies. It's also about the unbeliever who comes in and if he hears... God speaking through people, and his heart is revealed to him. He'll go, wow, you don't even know me. And what you just said to me just cut right to my heart. It's exactly what I walked in here carrying. One of my favorite stories is a friend of mine, Ben Goodman. Some of you may remember Ben Goodman. One day he was here, and a lady in the church who was suffering from a lot of mental health problems had woken up that morning and just said, I can't go. Going to church, especially for her, was incredibly painful sometimes. And she sat there and kind of argued with God, you know how you do, and just said, God, I just really need to know this morning that you love me. That's it. And so she got up and she went. And Ben had gone out in the hallway to probably get some water or something. Nobody else was out there, and she came in late. And she walked in the door right there, and he looked at her, and he said, hey, good morning. Good morning you know, I think I'm supposed to tell you that God loves you. Now, if you're Ben Goodman, you're thinking, everybody knows this. I mean, I can go, I can tell every, every one of you with confidence, God loves you. But for her, she had asked God specifically, I just need to know that you love me. And he looked at her, prompted by the Holy Spirit, said those words that probably meant nothing to him, but meant everything to her. Now, when that happens... That person says, whoa, God knows me. He's listening to me. God is here. Exactly what Paul is describing. Now imagine if Ben had looked at her and just started speaking in tongues. You see the problem? (laughs) She would have said, well, I'm going back home. This was a mistake. You're freaking me out. Actually, probably not her. She probably would have liked it knowing her, but... So note that Paul wants everyone to speak in tongues and he brags that, he, that no one speaks in tongues more than he does. So this is the wisdom of Paul's instructions, okay? He's not banning tongues. He's encouraging them to speak in tongues more, but to let their tongues be regulated by the love for the church and for, unbeliever, for the unbeliever by interpreting them or being silent. Because intelligibility. Interpreted tongues, in a sense, converts tongues to prophecy. That's essentially what's happening. You're taking what God said to you, converting it into a language that that person can understand and giving that to them. To that end, a message to the congregation in tongues should be interpreted. I do not believe this means that if you overhear your neighbor speaking in tongues during worship or a prayer meeting or wherever, that you get to bring them up on charges for church discipline. Is not what he's addressing, and that's a, I know that's a tough one. Because those of you who are here because you like the teaching and you like the doctrine and you're kind of you're okay with the gifts, but you just don't want them to happen. Sometimes you're going to find yourself in a situation because we actually believe this is real. You're going to find yourself in a situation where you're going to hear somebody speaking in tongues, and you just got to get over it. And maybe you should just, your response should be to ask God for it instead of going, I'm uncomfortable with that. Be eager for the spiritual gifts, all of them. You're not going to get all of them, I don't believe. But I'm eager for them. I'm jealous for people with gifts of faith, I just don't have it. I've got wisdom which I really like. Sometimes stuff comes out of my mouth and I'm like, I don't know where that came from, but it sounds like a fantastic idea. We should do that thing. That's a wonderful gift. But faith, man, they don't even have to have good ideas. It could be the worst Mm -hmm. idea ever and they just believe God no matter what. He's going to work out. It's going to work and it's a stupid idea, but we're just going to do it because God's going to bless it and they're just sort of there. They're like on the on their balls at their feet all the time. What are we doing, pastor? Where are we going? Just point me in the right direction. I'm on it. And anything that happens that goes sideways, they're like, it doesn't matter. Don't you love those people? They're kind of annoying sometimes when you're having a rough day, but they're a wonderful gift. I'm jealous of that. That's what I get around people like that. I go, man, God, I'm eager for that gift. I'd love to have it. That's pretty awesome. And I feel the lack of it in my life. Tongues is the same way. I speak in tongues and it's an absolute blessing in my life. Half the time I don't know how to pray and so I just speak in tongues. Even when I do know how to pray, I still speak in tongues. It's a wonderful gift. That word, edification, is the right word. It edifies me in here. And for somebody like me who's prone to melancholy and irritability and just wanting to do whatever the opposite of the gift of faith is, which is like give up and be like, this is all for nothing, like spiral down. You know what drags me out of that hole nine times out of ten? It's just praying in tongues. It's a wonderful thing. And somehow we've turned it into this thing to be feared and to be upset about and to be worried about as some kind of sign of somebody who's flaky, untrustworthy, and unbelievable and it's a trick of the devil and I, we're to blame not maybe not all of us in this room but the misuse of those tongues sometimes has been the cause of it so let me say this we're not corinth that makes the application tricky right the church in corinth was chaos Multiple people addressing the congregation in tongues while others prophesied over top of each other. No order at all. Paul's restrictions are meant as a practical application of his teaching on love above all else, not as an attempt to nerf the gifts. He's not trying to nerf the Holy Spirit and put him in, in, in like a, a, a padded bumper car and say, you, you must stay in this box over here by the microphone we have designated for people to use. In the time slot, we've allowed you to speak. And you must stay in this box. And you must not do anything we do not understand. If you proceed to do anything we don't understand, we are shutting that thing down. We have rules. And you must stay inside the rules. That is not what Paul is doing. He is promoting them by saying, love each other. Like, don't you care that you're being a blessing to someone else? Don't you care that when you're speaking to them in tongues and looking at them like with a crazy look in your eye that you're freaking them out? That maybe you should slow down and try to be intelligible and say what God is saying so they understand that that's the goal, to bless them and edify them? As I explained at the start, we're not that far from it. Nobody is swinging from the chandeliers or running on the backs of pews here. We don't have any chandeliers, and if you try to run on the back of these chairs, they will just flip over, right? These boundaries Paul gives for tongues and prophecy are good and wise, but they are not the central focus of concern in this section of Scripture. It's not his, he's not concerned about everybody following the rules. He's concerned about love. The central focus is that we are to eagerly desire the gifts and to do so in a way that does not compromise the greater command to love one another and to love unbelievers. This begins with ensuring that your message, the gospel, is intelligible and understood, but it also means that your message should come with demonstration of power, the power of the Spirit who sent you. Why is it we think those are our only two options? acting like crazy people, or having no expression of power whatsoever, and having a dry, powerless gospel. Those are not the two choices Paul is offering. He's saying, why can't you have love and power at the same time? It's not hard. We are convinced it's hard, but it's not. Demonstrations of power without love are a total fail. fail. That's 1 Corinthians 13. You can have all the tongues and power and miracles, and you can even give away all your money to the poor and make yourself homeless. You can, have your, you can be a martyr burned at the stake, and if you don't do that with love, it's, a, it's, a, it's annoying to God. That's a fail. You know what else is a fail? Love without power. It completely misses the mark. Paul said, I didn't come to you with wise and persuasive words, but with demonstration of the Spirit's power. Aren't you tired of preaching the gospel and representing Christ in the world as the body of Christ and not seeing the stuff in the Bible that has power attached? The stuff you can't explain, except to say, all I know is God is real. That's what this means. How did you know the secrets of my heart? How did you know That God, I just needed to hear God say, I love you. How did you know that? I didn't know that, but the Spirit did. The Spirit of Christ, who dwells in me and dwells in you, just said it through me. I get no credit. Don't you want that all the time? So, the question on everybody's minds, can all speak in tongues? I think that's a sidetrack, by the way, but I'll address it quickly. I think all is very hard to prove. By all, I mean everybody can speak in tongues, but I sure hope so. I think that's Paul's attitude. He doesn't say yes or no, right? He, when he says, Do all speak in tongues? No. He's like, Well, is he talking about everybody or is he talking about just in a worship service? What's he mean? What's the context? It's tough to sort out, okay? I think our attitude should be. Most people here did in, in Corinth. It just seems like that. Can't prove it. I don't think they, he would have to bring it up if most people were not speaking in tongues. That's challenging. I also think it's true of us that many of the people who have the gift of tongues don't think they do and don't speak in tongues. And there's no way for me to like go, well, you, that's you, that's you, that's you. I have no idea, okay? God does not give me that power. He doesn't give anybody that power. I don't know. I think it's a terrible mistake to take that and make a law of tongues where everyone must speak in tongues. That is a terrible, terrible error. A terrible mistake that puts people in bondage and actually makes them question their salvation, which is sort of not the point. The point is the opposite. So my advice to you is to ask the Holy Spirit for the gift on a regular basis. To mirror Paul's attitude. I wish that everybody spoke in tongues. That's my desire. I am not in control of who does and who doesn't, and I do not expect that everyone will or should. It is not a sign of your salvation. So just ask him, like any other gift. You want faith? Ask him for it. You want wisdom? Ask him for it. He may or may not give it to you. You may have to depend on someone else for wisdom or for faith like me. But ask him for it. And don't quit asking. And after you ask, try it. Here's the most practical advice I can give you. All right? If you're like, boy, I'd like to give this a shot. I just don't feel like doing it in front of other people. Understandable. okay? Because one of the things about speaking in tongues is it confronts your need to understand. What does Paul say? My mind is unprofitable. I don't even know what I'm saying. For some of you, you're in bondage to needing to understand everything so that you can control it. And it's a stronghold in your life. You will not obey God until you understand what's going to happen and you can predict it's going to work out well. God, I'll do what you say when I can see where my foot's going to land. And when I see where my foot's going to land, then I'll take a step. I must understand before I do. And one great benefit of tongues is your mind is unprofitable. You do not understand what you're saying. For some people, they love that. And some people, it makes them very uncomfortable. If you're one of those people, here's what you do. You just get by yourself where only you can embarrass you and you just try it. You just try it. Nope. That's not tongues. I don't know what's going on. I just said breakfast (laughs) instead of tongues, right? If the word breakfast comes out of your mouth, not tongues, all right, or whatever, right? And, And then you go, well, I just don't have the gift. So just ask him again. And whenever you ask, try it again. You won't know. Here's the killer. It's the way God is. You won't know if you have the gift of tongues until you try it. It's not like the Holy Spirit comes and takes, it's not like intrusive thoughts (laughs) where all of a sudden weird words come into your head and you're like, and your mouth starts moving like you're in a trance, all right? Don't, that's not how this works. Faith is always in doing, right? So you won't know until you try it. And if you try it and fail and it's not there, it's okay. It's not a failure. Just keep asking God. And you may ask Him for your entire life and never get the gift. That's okay too. But I, my hope, like Paul, my hope is that every one of you would speak in tongues. That's my hope. Because that's the Bible right there. So that's my advice. I'd like to pray. Um, I'd like to pray and ask God for this specifically right now. Um, I don't know what will happen. I don't know. Maybe some of y'all right now will start speaking in tongues and make everybody else come comfortable. I'd be okay with that. That's all right. Maybe you won't. Maybe it'll be in the car on the ride home and you just try it out and go, oh, wait a minute, I'm doing this. This is kind of cool. I don't know what'll happen. I'm not asking God. I'm not controlling anything. So I just want to pray and ask God to give us this gift. Um, But me praying is not magic. You got to ask God yourself. Um, The Holy Spirit's not going to force himself on you. Usually not. Sometimes he does. Because he loves you. (laughs) But let's stand up together. And I'm going to pray. God, first I just pray for those who. um, This topic. Brings up all sorts of. Negative connotations negative feelings, feelings of worry, maybe even anger. Maybe they've been taught that anyone who speaks in tongues is filled with demons. Maybe they've been taught that this stuff is not for today. It's for another time. Or maybe they've just been taught that tongues is for today, but everybody who does it is faking it. Maybe this is associated with all sorts of evil, wicked things. And God, I pray right now that you would just ground them in your word and what you say to be true, not in their experience. God, that you wouldn't ground them in what I say or what I do, but God, that you would ground them in your word and in your spirit. God, every gift that you give is a gift. We don't want to reject your gifts. If it's a gift from you, it's good and it's an expression of you. It's an expression of the Spirit. So to reject the gift is to reject the Spirit. So you got to help us to, to not just think about the gift and whether or not we want it or not, but to think about the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, who represents Jesus, the one who unifies us with Christ and holds us in his hand forever one who seals our our salvation, the down payment on our eternal future in Christ, that spirit is offering this gift. So Lord, I just pray right now that you would extend this offer, extend the gift to all of those that you choose right now. God, above all else, I pray that you would teach us how to love one another well. God, bring us to a point where we are not dependent on our understanding in order to receive from you. God, help us to take our hands off the controls and to be able to trust you with our experiences. God, we want to know your presence. We want to experience your presence. We want to experience power. God, the gospel message would go forth with demonstrations of your power, that it would be verified to the world and to each other that you are truly among us. God, help us to navigate all the complicated issues associated with this without restricting you and trying to nerf you into not doing what you desire to do. God, we submit to you right now in the name of Jesus. Amen.